The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Well, we are continuing on in 1 John. Open up your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. And uh, throughout our time, we've seen John is very cyclical. Uh, some might say he's scatterbrained, but uh, he, he approaches things over and over and over again, but a little different look. And so uh, the context of what's going on in 1 John, because sometimes we forget these letters, they weren't just originally written to us. They were actually written to people back then. And so there was a circumstance that was going on. And so John is writing, we don't know exactly where, but likely to probably Ephesus. Uh, but there is... Uh, there's division in the church, right? There are people that have uh, come from within the church and they are denying the fundamentals of the gospel. They're denying certain truths about Christ, about um, him coming in the flesh rather than being a spirit. And so this group of people that have been led astray, it's the early forms of what's called Gnosticism. And that word Gnostic, it means uh, knowledge. And so they believe that they had this special knowledge about Christ. This happened in a ceremony that because they were endowed with this unique knowledge, that that was what saved them. But they started to deny these essential foundational truths about Christ, and they left the church. And they were seeking, you know, as anything like that goes, they still had relationships with people in the church. And so you see this kind of pull where people that are seeking to be faithful to Christ are seeing these people that they had lived out life with and are denying the truths of the gospel. And so John is writing to give them clarity. How do you, you know, how do you make sense of a mess like that? How do you discern what's true and what's wrong? How do you seek to love? You know, what are the truths about who really is a Christian and who isn't? And so John is writing this book to, to bring clarity into a situation that is muddy and a situation that is confusing. And he's trying to do this through showing black and white terms. He's very much contrasting and saying, listen, there's a lot of gray, but he's saying, we're going to focus on what is black and white, what is true and what is false, what is light and what is darkness, because these are the ways in which you're going to know. And so throughout the book, he gives these three, doc- these three tests. You know, how do you know that you're a Christian? He writes the book to give assurance to those that remain, right? He wants them to be assured that you are genuinely Christians. You are genuinely following Christ. And he also wants to, to warn those that have left, those that are, are, dis- are deceived and say, listen, you're not following Christ because these things are not true. And so he gives these three tests, and he kind of cycles through them over and over again. Um, but he gives the moral test. He says that God is light, and that if we claim to be in God, we will walk in the light as he is in the light. And that means this, that there will be integrity, that there will be confession of sin, that there's this desire for purity and for holiness that happens that accompanies those who know Jesus. They can't just be indifferent about their sin. They can't just pass it by that they hate it, right? Because they want to be holy as God is holy. And so that's the, that's the first test, this moral test. He says there's also a social test. He says you can't claim to be a Christian and yet hate the brothers, right? You can't claim to like, I love Jesus, but I can't stand Christians. You know, that doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. And so, because that's what they would do is they said, listen, you know, the whole Jesus thing's fine, but I just, I can't stand being with those people. And he says, that's a contradiction. To love God is to love people. Those two go hand in hand, and you've, you've deceived yourself if you think that I love God, but yet you can't stand, 
You can't stand people. You can't stand Christians. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to like every single Christian, right? I, I promise you, you walk into church and there are going to be people that frustrate you, people that have different personalities from you. You know, we are all broken. But, but the love that God has shown for us overrides those differences, overrides those brokenness that we see in other people and provides this deep care and concern for one another. And then the, the last thing is he talks about doctrinal tests, is that there are things that are, are true and things that are false. And so uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today is he reaffirms uh, what it is that we believe about Christ. Because there are people that can seem very nice, very good, very moral people, but yet underneath that's not the truth because um, they, they deceive and they, um, they lead astray God's people by misrepresenting who Jesus is. And so... Uh, we're going to be in 1 John 4, 1 through 6, and this is what John is doing. He's talking about this doctrinal test about who Christ is. Uh, before we read that, I wanted to read, uh, there was a, in 2013, there's a, a Christian rapper named Shy Lin, and he actually wrote like a, a rap about, and I'm not going to rap, I'm going to read it. So I know that some of you are like, oh, this is going to be entertaining. Uh, I'm not that bold. Um, but he, he made a rap, and in it he talks about false teachers. And I just think it's really illustrative and helpful for us. He said, don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is. He came to redeem us from sin, and that is the message forever I yell. If you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. Turn off TBN. That channel is overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements, financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualizing heretics, Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of a needle. And just to set the, the tone for this is the same thing as John has a posture of warning. He wants to caution us and, and help us to be warned about false teachers. And so listen to 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. So the big idea that guides us today is that there are many false spirits that are in the world. There are many false spirits that are in the world that we must know and hold fast the truth about Christ if we are to discern truth from error. We must know and hold fast to the truth about Christ if we are to discern truth from error. And so the, the outline, of the, the four points we're going to talk about is, uh, is really in question statements. The first one, are you following false prophets? In verse one, um, do they confess the divine Lord? These are tests to tell someone's a false prophet or not, uh, an evil spirit leading astray. Do they confess the divine Lord? Do they possess divine life? And do they profess the divine truth? Do they profess the divine truth? So the first question is, uh, are they following false prophets? And one of the first things that I want us to notice as we dive into this question 
is how is it that John sees his church? We've talked about this before, but the first thing that he starts with is this word beloved, dearly loved ones. I think it's so important because sometimes we don't believe that about ourselves. We don't think that God sees us as those that are beloved in his eyes. And when you don't think or understand that you are loved by God, you will look for love and you'll look for value and you'll look for appreciation in all the wrong places. And you will make things that aren't God become God because you're so desperate to fill that longing inside of your life. Like I, I say this all the time, but my wife's a phenomenal wife, but she stinks at being God. You know, I mean, my son, I love him to death and he's cute and cuddly, but he's a terrible God. You know, and so we turn a lot of things that are not intended to be God into God because we don't believe that we are truly loved by him. And we search for that love in all of the wrong places. And so John knows he's been convinced of this. I mean, this is a man that's probably in his 80s and he's still steadfast in this point that he is loved by God. He hasn't moved on from it. It's not like old news. And so it's still as fresh and real to him. And not only that, but he is so emphatic that he wants to, he wants those that are younger than him, those that are still in the faith, to be assured that they are loved of God. And he speaks that in their life. And so it just is encouraging. How do we speak to each other? How do we identify one another? What are the words that we use? Are, are the words that we use that come out of our mouth, are they helping to solidify someone's identity in Christ? Or are they detracting from it? Are, they, are, there, are there, our words helping them to find their identity in their job? or their appearance, or their spouse, or how are we using our words? Are, they, are, they, are we redirecting them to show them this is who they are in Christ? Because when we are, we are assured that we are loved by him, we move out in the world in strength and in confidence. And so I hope that you know that you are loved by God, that he knows you and that he loves you. All right. So I don't need that, so we're just going to talk. <laughs> yeah, I'm just not going to deal with that. <laughs> Check. All right, awesome. So the... We are beloved. The Lord knows us and loves us. Um, and the second thing that John immediately goes into is that he warns us. He says, don't believe every spirit. Basically, he's saying, listen, warning, don't be gullible. And he he does this because oftentimes we we soak in whatever we listen to. And especially especially now, I think John is, is communicating, slow down. Don't believe every spirit it means that there are times where it's okay to say, hold on, I don't, need to, I don't need to affirm this immediately. I need to process this. We have so much information coming at us so quickly all of the time that it's hard for us to even process that information. I mean, you see it with fake news all the time, right? Is that some news blur pops up and people immediately read it and believe it because there's so much information. And we, we desire to do everything at once, all the time. And what happens when that desire is there is that we don't do anything well and we don't go deep and we become surface people and we become gullible, right? People that are, are on the surface are people that are gullible and people that are constantly busy never go deep in anything and they're never able to have true discernment. And so he's saying, listen, there are times where error is going to become very obvious, right? I mean, you know it, you hear it, it's very obvious, but man, Satan is a deceiver. And a lot of times 
Error comes in very subtly and it takes time and intentionality to discern it. And so what that means is it means that we can't be people that make quick snap judgments about things, that we need to be slow, we need to be cautious, that we need to listen and understand, and that in that process we are discerning. And so it's okay to say, I don't know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I'm going to listen. I'm going to seek understanding. And so he, he warns us and says, don't, don't be gullible. Um, Romans 16, 17 through 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And so he says that there are times where people are going to come in and they're going to be very eloquent. They're going to be really friendly. They're going to be able to say the things that you want to hear. And he says, don't be quick to accept. Always love, but be cautious. There should be an amount of, of pause whenever we're listening to something. Even when you're listening to me, I want you to examine the scriptures. Don't just take everything that I say and go to the bank. Go into the, your Bible, open it up, and read it for yourself. Ask the Spirit of God to bring discernment and wisdom into your life. And so he talks about this, that they're able to, by smooth talk, deceive people. The second thing I think is really important is that, you know, John starts talking about this world of spirits, and immediately we're like, that's weird. You know, somebody starts talking about spirits, and we think that, you know, maybe they got out of the cycle ward. I mean, we're not used to that kind of language or that kind of conversation. And honestly, in our 21st century world, a lot of times we immediately get suspicious, and we think, you know, like they are crazy or they don't know what they're doing. Um, there's a reality behind this, and the Bible is full of it, is that um, there is a spiritual reality that we don't see that, that goes on all the time, and that it manifests itself in people's lives and through their words. And he says that these spirits, they're speaking through people, and that each person is led by a, by a spirit, but what is the spirit that they are being led by? And that there is a reality behind that. Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you hear what, he, what Paul's talking about in these two chapters? He says that there's a war that's going on. There's something that is, tr- is real, it's true, even though you do not see it with your eyes, and that is going on. And if we simply wage war by our human efforts and we don't understand that there is a war going on in the spiritual realm and that it is to be waged in the spirit, then we are deceiving ourselves and we will be led astray. We will be led astray. For spiritual discernment doesn't come by simply human efforts, but it comes by spiritual discernment by the Lord. And so he, he warns us and he cautions us. He says, listen, don't just, don't just ignore this. Don't just pass this by. And there are people that, man, I know people that have this, a, a very large amount of skepticism to anything that they can't see, touch, feel, any of the five senses. If I can't see it, I, it's, it's not real. Man, I would, I would urge you, explore the, the spiritual realm like you would explore anything else. Do, it, do, it, do an inquiry in it. Seek the Lord ask of him, taste and see that God is good. If you're here and you're dubious, does God even exist? Is he real? I would ask you at least go and, and open your life to that possibility. Ask it is, it, is it true? Is it real? 
God will, God will show himself real in your life if you at least begin to open up your life to the opportunity, to the truth of it, the reality of it. And so he says, after, after this, he says, test the spirits, right? So don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every person that you hear, every person that claims to be a Christian, that preaches a message. Don't believe everything that they say, but, but test the spirits. And what does it mean to test, right? The idea of a test is it discloses, right? It reveals. I mean, when you're cramming for that, that test that you have to, you know, pass, like what's the test intended to do? It's intended to reveal whether you actually know what you're supposed to know or you don't. And so, too, the, the word comes from this, uh, the idea of purging metal is that they would, they would test the metal to see whether it was pure, whether it had any faults in it, to whether it could stand the test. And there are, there are consequences if we don't test things, if we just go without a test, if we don't have any discernment and we just jump in. Now, there are consequences physically, but also spiritually, right? I mean, we all know that there are objective physical truths, right? That, I mean, if you jump off a building, you will fall and you will, you know, physically land and either die or get hurt. We know that that's a truth, but yet we don't think that there are objective truths for moral or spiritual claims, that if you hate other people, it will rot your soul. That if you, if you follow something other than Christ, that it will lead you to hell. We don't think that those things are true. We, we can see things with our eyes physically, but yet we don't think that there are objective truths in the moral and spiritual realm. And he's saying that, that there are, and we are, to, we are to test them. You know, our, just to illustrate this, I remember when I was in college, uh, I was with a, a, a group of buddies in there. Uh, I was, went to school in southern Missouri, so uh, the Lake of the Ozarks is there, and there's a lot of cliffs, and so we would go cliff jumping. And, uh, and I went with this group of guys, knew them really well, and, uh, and they assured me, like, hey, this is, a, this, this is fine. We've jumped off this all the time. And so they jump off. It's about a 35-foot cliff. They jump off this cliff, and they jump, go into the water. I'm like, well, I'm not going first. <laughs> like, you guys lead the way, you know? And so both of them jump, and they jump, and they go in awkwardly. You know, they don't jump straight down. They kind of land awkwardly, and then they're complaining about how they hurt. I'm like, they're dumb. Like, I'm just going to st- jump straight in, you know? And, uh, and I didn't test. I didn't go down and examine it myself. I didn't see how deep it was. I just took their word for it. I just followed them because I thought that they knew what they were doing. And so I jump in, and, and I didn't jump out far enough. It, 35 feet, it was in six feet of water. And I landed, went through, hit both of my feet, buckled and hit my knee, and it's a miracle that I didn't shatter my shins, let alone die. And so I, you know had to crawl my way up the cliff, crawl my way to the car and go to my house. And at three in the morning, calling friends because I couldn't get off the couch and go to the restroom. And so they ended up taking me to the hospital. But we know that physically. We, we see, oh, there's a real consequence. Hey, Trevor, that was probably not the brightest idea you've ever had. Boy, we don't think about that spiritually. We don't think about that, that me refusing to be in community, me refusing to confess my sins is actually destroying my life. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hinder me from growing in Christ. That me not loving other people deeply is, just, is, is, is inwardly rotting my soul. We don't think about those truths, that they're objective, that they're real. We don't think about the objective truth that when someone comes and they, they proclaim another Christ, that it will lead you, it will lead you astray. And so he says that we need to, we need to test. We need to test the spirits. Not every person that comes and, and, and says a message that sounds good is correct. I mean, when you see this with the cults especially, 
I mean, and, and preparing for this was reading about Jim Jones in the 1970s, you know, and how he, you know, led 900 people down to drink cyanide Kool-Aid. And it, it, it started good. He started talking about racial reconciliation. He had, a, you know, I mean, it started, if you, if you actually look at the beginning of the ministry, it sounds great. It sounds great. But as it came on, there were more and more flags that came up and people put aside discernment. They put aside caring because they just wanted to be a place where they were accepted. They wanted to be in a place where they were loved. And so listen, acceptance and love is critical, but we have to be discerning about what the truth is because it will lead us. It will lead us astray if we don't pay attention. So are we following false prophets? Are we just listening to what people say? Or are we testing? Are we discerning? The second question is, you know, to discern, do they confess the divine Lord? Do they confess the divine Lord? He says this, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has, Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so the first thing, the first test that we discern is, do they confess the truth? And that's a pretty good idea. That, you know, you should say what is true. But this confession isn't simply just a regurgitation, right? I mean, anybody can regurgitate the truth about Jesus. I mean, you can pay somebody to come in here and they could tell you, wow, I believe Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he rose from the dead. I mean, you can regurgitate the truth, but it doesn't really mean that you, you believe it. And so there there's, has to be a deep, heartfelt conviction behind the confession of truth. And this is what 1 John 1, 9 says. It says, if we confess our sins... God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? This is the other time that John uses his word confess. And what does he mean by this? He's, he's, he's saying, not if we just acknowledge, well, listen, I'm, I'm, I sin sometimes, but he says, if we confess our sins, if we are truly transparent and honest with one another, we have someone, do you have someone in your life that you can do that with? You can be real. You can open up and say, I'm struggling in this. I, I know that this is wrong and I want to be honest. I hate this. And someone that will proclaim the gospel to you and remind you that your sin is not who you are. That is not what defines you. It's Christ that defines you, right? He says that that confession, it's a heartfelt brokenness, it's a heartfelt realization of the evil in our life. So to the, the confession, the truth is a heartfelt acknowledgement and attachment to that truth. I mean, how many of us have seen kids that you, you tell them, all right, unless you say sorry to your brother, you're not going to get, you know, like to play with a, you know, PlayStation. You're not going to get watch TV. And they sure enough, they go along and I'm sorry, right? And they didn't mean it at all. You know, they go back and five minutes later, you know, they're fighting, you know, they're doing the same thing. It wasn't a truly a heartfelt confession. He says, so too, there are lots of people that they, they'll give you a confession of the truth about Christianity. They can regurgitate it, but it hasn't sunk down to the core of who they are. And he says, that's one of the things that you know someone's a false teacher or not, is that not simply they merely profess those things, but their confession resonates with their life. They have a heartfelt conviction that Christ is who he says that he is. The second thing is that they confess the truth about the person of Christ. Right? Christianity rises or falls with who we believe Christ is. And so... There are, I'm just going to do four kind of major false teachings that we see about the person of Christ. The first one is, I think, probably the most prevalent in our culture is that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, right? That he's just a good moral teacher. I mean, and there are lots of people that will, I mean, almost everybody you talk to on the street, they're going to be like, yeah, I mean, 
Jesus is a good guy. He taught good morals. I mean, we should, you know, follow like his general moral teaching, but you know, the whole miracle stuff, resurrection from the dead, uh, dying on the cross for our sins, being gone in the flesh, ah, people maybe added that later on, you know? Um, but Jesus is just a good moral teacher. And when, when you believe that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, then, his then, then you take his teaching as one opinion among many. And what that means is, is that, well, I'll look at what he has to say. Eh, I don't really like that part about loving your enemies or about being generous. And so that's a good opinion on that topic, Jesus. But let me consult uh, other people's opinion, like myself. And my opinion on that is that I should be stingy because I like my stuff. And so it's very easy to, to throw aside what Jesus says when he's just a good moral teacher rather than the incarnate son of God. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, and Jesus did, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you can go back to the earliest scrolls that we have, and Jesus claims to be God. And that is the revolutionary fact about Christianity, is that Jesus claims it. He's either a liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. And as you look at it, he is Lord. He is who he says that he is. And because of that, he's not just one option among many. He is the only option. He is the truth, the way, and the life. And so we see that this false teaching. Second, Jesus is a created being, Jehovah Witness, right? That Jesus is really just Michael the archangel, now incarnate in human flesh. That he's a, a, a created being. He's powerful, but he is not equal with God. And why this is so distorting is that, it one, it's not the truth about who Christ is. If Jesus isn't God, then he could not have represented God to us fully. And not only that, he's not able to fully take the sin of humanity upon himself. For it was an eternal debt that he took upon himself. And only eternal being, only one equal with God can endure that. And Hebrews talks about that he is our representative. That he represents God to us and that he is the exact imprint of God in his nature. And so Jesus is not just a created being. He is eternal, equal with the Father. And this is what he, he claims when he says before Abraham or before Moses was, I am. Or before Abraham was, I am. He claims to be equal with God for Mormons, that Jesus became a God. So the official doctrine of, of uh, the Mormon church is that God, the Father, was once a human, was once a, a, a being that became God, and that you and I, that we can become gods and have our own spiritual planets, that Jesus and Satan were spirit brothers. And this is the official teaching of the church. And so, I mean, it's... It seems fairly obvious why this is uh, this is leading us astray. Jesus, if Jesus is just a, a person that became a god, then really we're no different than him. Then he is not set apart. We don't need him necessarily. He's just a moral example. And the third, and I think this is probably the most powerful in third world countries right now. Um, but that Jesus died so you could be financially prosperous, the prosperity gospel. That what Jesus did is Jesus really wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? That that's what he died for is so that you would never be sick. And if you're sick, then increase your faith and that you would be financially lucrative. And so if you're ever poor, then you need to pray harder, Right? You, need to, you need to get on board with what God's doing in your life, that your best life is now. And, and we have in our country millions of people that flock to that, millions of people that want to hear that. 
and it's deceiving them and leading them astray because the incarnation, God came not so that you would be physically healthy, although that's great, and there are times where God might heal you, not so that you would be financially lucrative. He came to save you from your sin. He came to rescue you so that you might be with him and that one day this world would be renewed and that our primary problem isn't our lack of finances. It's not our health. It's our rebellion against God. That is our primary problem. And that when, when he comes in and heals that, that everything else will be, will, will be healed. He will heal all things. I mean, in the kingdom to come, we will not worry about wealth. We'll not worry about sickness or death any longer. And so his primary problem he comes is, is he comes to change the heart of man, our broken rebellion heart, and to give us a new nature. He says all of these false teachings, these false gospels, they lead people astray. And it's the spirit of the Antichrist that he comes as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, it says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Hmm. So do they confess the divine Lord, who Jesus really is? In verse 4, the question is, do they possess divine life? Notice he says, and throughout the passage, he talks about, are they from God? Are they from God? And so the first in verse 4, he says, little children, you are from, from God. And John is so emphatic about this, that your identity is vitally important. Who do you think that you are? Where do you find your meaning? Where, from where have you come from and where are you going and what is your purpose? And he is emphatic to say that you, you've been born again. You have been given new life because of the spirit that lives in us. And listen, this takes a while for us to understand. I was talking to somebody last week about it, and uh, and they were kind of wrestling and, and struggling. You know, do I know Christ, and am I in this? And I was, you know, seeking to encourage them because listen, like I think that they do know Christ, but sometimes it takes a while for that identity for us to understand that we are in Christ to settle into us. I mean, I've been married two and a half years, and I'm still kind of getting on board with like I'm a husband. Like that identity change is still, you know, still sinking into me. You know, my wife attests to the reality because sometimes I think for myself, I'm still like, I'm just a single guy and like I think about things and I'm like, I can't just do that anymore. I have to think differently now. I have a family, you know? And so that change in mindset is still sinking in. And so to our identity in Christ, it's not like all of a sudden we become a Christian and now we understand that we're in Christ perfectly. There's a real change that happens, but that takes place, that, that manifests itself over time. And so as you, as you realize God's love for you and what it means that you are his child and that he cherishes you and that he will provide for you more than you ever could dream or imagine that his plans are better for you than your plans are for yourself. As you begin to understand your identity and your relationship with God, it will play itself out in your life. But that takes time. It's like a seed. It grows. Sometimes we wish it would grow quicker, right? And we can help in that growth by putting in good soil and watering it. But at the same time, that growth is, is still from God. It's from God. And so he says that we are from God and we have overcome them, right? 
And this is, I mean, this is one of the most encouraging things that the scripture talks about is that we are overcomers. And what does it mean that we've overcome them? Well, he, before he's talking about these, the spirit of the Antichrist is these false spirits that lead us astray. I don't know about you, anybody have these lies that bombard them, right? That, that you're not enough, that you, you continue to fail, that if you could just work harder, then you would finally be accepted. You'd finally be there that if you just had that kind of life or that kind of marriage or that kind of home or that kind of job, or if you only had that kind of personality that was just funny and witty, then, then things in your life would just be so much better. Do you think that these lies aren't from the enemy? Do you think these, and these lies so often come from false teachers that say, this is what you really need. And, and he says, we have overcome them. We've overcome these lies, these, these attacks. It doesn't mean that they don't at times hurt us, they don't at times wound us or inflict us or harm us, but he says we've overcome these. Why? Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Because we believe that Christ has overcome all of those things that wage war against our soul. Right? The sin that enslaves us, the spiritual attacks that we face, the world that wants to warp us into its way of thinking. Jesus has overcome these by the cross. He has crucified them, right? He says that we are, when we are in Christ, that we are crucified to these things. These things have died. And that they, their power is being stripped. Now, it doesn't mean, he says that the old is passing away and the new, it's being renewed in us. It's coming day by day. We are being renewed. And so we have overcome. And I hope that this is, it's intended to be encouraging for you is to know that even though at times, at times you feel defeated, at times you look and you feel like the enemies facing you are bigger than what's inside, and he says, listen, be encouraged because victory often comes from what seems like it's defeat. When it seems like things are stacked against you, we trust not in ourselves, but in the God who's bigger than the things against us. I mean, isn't that what we see with David and Goliath, right? I mean, like we look at the story of David and Goliath and here is this Philistine that stands against the people of God and day after day, every single one is intimidated because it looks like he is too big of a foe. He can't be conquered. And what does David trust in? David doesn't say, well, I've practiced a lot. I've got this whole slinging thing down and you're going down, buddy. Like, no, he says, I trust in the Lord. And because he, he trusts in the Lord, that's what brings him victory. I mean, you look at Christ. His victory came through death and he conquered. And so too, Victory for us, it comes not in our own power, but it comes through trusting in Christ that he is able to turn what seems like defeat into, into victory. And that he will overcome. Even at times when we feel like we're enslaved and we feel like we're beaten down, he's able to bring victory even into those areas of our life. And when we're not experiencing, we trust in him. We hold fast to his promises that he is able because he who is he's stronger than he who's in the world. The last thing as we close, as we wrap up, is do they profess the divine truth? So he talks about that there are two audiences. He says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The world listens to them. Now, he says that the world communicates in a certain way, and therefore they receive that. And I think that this is a really important part, especially for us in our culture, is that oftentimes we think that the way that we're going to change the world is through politics, is that we think that if we can just vote the right people into office, then our culture will become Christian. Then, then things will, will change. And listen, hear this. I don't think that it's wrong for us to desire for godly men to be in leadership. 
that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. But I think that we're deluded if we think that because we desire and put in office godly men, that that's going to change our culture, that that's going to lead people to love Jesus. Because it's not. He says that the world listens to the world's message and that the world is going to desire a message that's going to fit its ears. And so we have to realize that it is a miracle. It is a miracle. It's not by human effort or by force that someone comes to Christ. That is a miracle when someone receives the gospel and their heart is changed. And this is what he, he goes on and he says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And what he means by this is that it's not by human might or by our effort that someone becomes a Christian, that someone's heart is changed. John's not saying that, listen, the world only listens to itself, so just abandon it and leave it to its own practices and never try to share the gospel or never love it or never communicate truth to it. That's not all what he's saying. But what he is saying, he's saying, listen, it is God's work to open up someone's heart, to open up someone's ears, to receive. And so don't, when you go to communicate with the world, don't expect that it's going to understand or acquiesce or agree with the gospel or with what you're communicating. And when we desire that, that human life would be honored, we shouldn't expect that the world is going to understand or agree with that stance or readily you know, get on board with it. But we, but we do speak because we believe that God has appointed some, that God will save, and that God's Spirit will go forth, and it will open up people's eyes and open up their ears and change their hearts to believe. Second Timothy 4, 3-4, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he's saying that the Spirit is the one that brings discernment to our life, that he's able to help us to understand the truth, that he's the one that takes someone that's hard as rebellion against God and turns it into love and acceptance of God. And so as we communicate, we have to know that it is a Spirit's work that, that we do, that we partner with. And same thing in John 10, 27 through 30, he says, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, me, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so he, he reassures us, says, those that, those that listen to God are those that have been born of God, are those that God is saving, is reaching out into. And he doesn't mean that, listen, every single person that listens to a Christian is a Christian or is going to be born of a Christian, right? There are a lot of things that people say um, that, you know, like not every single person is going to listen to me. And just because someone doesn't listen to me doesn't mean that they don't know the Lord, or they don't love the Lord. What he's talking about, listen to us, he's talking about the gospel, the apostolic message. And how is it that we hear that now? We hear that through the preaching of his word, that as God's word is preached, as it, it is seek to be held up and its mean, its, its intent is laid forth, God still speaks to his people through that. God is still living and active and he still speaks to his people through his word as his word is faithfully applied and preached. So 
as we close, as we wrap up and we go into our worship set, you know, the application for the, the text, how is it that we are to discern truth from error, right? I think the, the biggest thing that we focus on is that we in and of ourselves can't, but the Holy Spirit in us can. That this, should, this text should make us desperate and hungry for the Holy Spirit to come into our life and to bring wisdom and discernment. Because he is able to help us discern truth from error. He, the Holy Spirit shows us who Christ is and gives us a clear picture of Christ. And so what this does is it humbles those of us that are Christians because it says, listen, the only reason that you believe in Christ, the only reason that you see Christ clearly is because the Holy Spirit has come into your life and has given you this vision, has, has shown you who he is. It's not because you're unique or you're special, or you're better than someone else, but it's because the Holy Spirit is gracious and has come in and, and has opened up our eyes. This humbles us in our approach to other people. We can't approach other people in a prideful or arrogant manner. We figure things out and you haven't. We approach people with a humble and gracious posture, begging that the Holy Spirit would, would make evident what he has made evident to us. And the second thing is, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would ask you that God wants to, to help you to see the truth. He wants you to, to understand the beauty and the value of Jesus, and that comes by being open and receptive to the Spirit. The Spirit, when he comes into your life, he, he brings strength and encouragement, but most importantly, he points you to Jesus. And he shows you Jesus' beauty and your need for him. And so as we close in prayer, just my heart is that you would open up and that you would cry out and ask that the Holy Spirit would come into your life, that, that you would not quench the Spirit, that there's sin that is holding back you from living in him, that you would confess it and repent of it. And so pray with me. Father, we, we thank you that you are here to protect us from truth from, uh, and, and to teach us to discern truth from error. Um, and that you've given us the spirit that lives in us that will do this. And so I pray if there are people here that don't know you and they haven't trusted you, that um, that they would be open, God, that they would they would open up their hearts, open up their eyes, and just say, I, I want you. I, I, I desire that you would come in and that you would teach me, that you would show me, remove the, the closed heart, Lord. And for those of us that know you, Lord, I pray that we would be sensitive, that you would help us to have a discerning, uh, discerning mind be welcome to Holy Spirit. Uh, continue to reside and live in us. Stay here we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.